You're listening to How to Win with Mike Moore, the podcast that provides you with practical insights on how to win in every arena of life. I want to talk from the subject together but not equal. Together but not equal. You know, it's interesting. I, I You know, I have to share with you the way the Lord deals with me. I, I'm a pastor, so I pastor a local church, and usually... The Spirit of God give me an outline, and I prepare my lessons ahead of time, but I also stand in an office of prophet, and, and there are times when I'm speaking prophetically and teaching prophetically, and I don't always know where I'm going, but I'm just following the Spirit of God. So I want to give you a little review to how we got to together but not equal. On October the 27th, I was teaching a series that I did not complete. I intend to go back to it entitled Your Words, Your World. In the second episode of that series, I felt a leading. I didn't know it was a prophetic leading, but I felt a leading to talk about politics, response, and words. And right before the election, we began to talk about the fact that Christians should engage in politics, but we talked about how we should respond whoever wins, and we talked about the importance of our words. Then November the 10th, after the election, I talked about the divide between black Christians and white Christians in America. And I was talking about uh, how blacks and white Christians in America are divided along party lines. And I was talking about uh, policy versus uh, character. And then November the 17th, again, I'm just flowing. I talked about racism, the elephant in the room. And uh, we talked about the hist- history of racism in America, and we talked about why racism persists. Now, this next lesson, I didn't know it was a series, but it's turned out to be a series. This next lesson is entitled today, Together But Not Equal. In Acts chapter 13, we see a prototype, or we see God's intent for the church. In Acts 13, chapter 1, in the authorized King James Version, it says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, which was brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. So here is a, 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 a God's intent for the church. This is the first Christian Gentile church at Antioch, and it was a multiracial or a diverse church, And it lists the leadership of the church, this local church, this first Gentile Christian church. uh, There are five individuals, listen, that were prophets and teachers or prophets or teachers. They represent the leadership of this first Gentile Christian church. And we have Barnabas, 
who was a Cypriot Jew, or he was a native of Cyprus. And we have Simeon, that was called Niger. And Simeon was a, a black person, a black leader in the church. Niger, the word Niger in Latin means black or dark skinned. And Niger is where from, where you get our word Nigeria from. So he was a black leader in the church. <clears throat> Lucius was another black leader in the church. He was from Northern Africa. And then Manian, he was a member of nobility, the royal family. And then we have Saul, who history tells us was born in a wealthy family. Saul, who later became Paul, was a highly educated and trained as a rabbi. So in this church at Antioch, we see diversity. We see God's plan. We see that God's intent for his church to be a multiracial, a multicultural church. And we see Jews in this church, Gentiles in this church. We see whites in this church, blacks in this church. We see those who are educated in this church, those who may not be as educated. And we also see those that have class, those that have wealth. And we see those that may not have had much wealth. But we see a multiracial, multicultural church. And I believe that it was a church that God's intent for the church to be, and I believe that they were both together and equal. But in this lesson today, we're talking about together, but not equal. It's possible to be in the same local church and yet not experience equality. Now, I want to, in this introduction, I want to define some important terms. I want to define what the word equality means, what the word diversity means, and what the word inclusion means. And often we use these terms interchangeably, but they're different. Equality, and I'll give you two simple definitions. Equality is everyone has the same rights and gets the same treatment, chances, and resources. Equality is everyone has the same rights and gets the same treatment, same chances, and same resources. Now, many people separate equity from, from uh Equality, but I'll just simply say is everyone, equity is everyone that gets what they need to be successful. Now, diversity, and we're saying that it's possible to be together but not be equal. Diversity is recognizing, including, or involving people from a range of different races ethnicities, and cultural backgrounds. Diversity is recognizing, including, or involving people from a range of different races, ethnicities, and cultural backgrounds. And then finally, inclusion is being a valued part 
of a society or group, inclusion as being a valued part of a society or group. Now, I want to I want to talk and, and maybe maybe my assignment and maybe what I'm doing is raising issues. And, and right now I'm standing in the office, not of a pastor, but a, as a prophet speaking to the church. And in order to have racial reconciliation, there must be some deep, honest, transparent, communication and conversations. And these are the conversations that we've avoided. So the problem of race problems persist because we won't deal with the issue. So a part of maybe what my assignment is, is to elevate some of these issues. And at some place, hopefully, I'm believing God, that some place we will have a multiracial multicultural uh, examination and discussion of all these issues. But I brought up an issue in my book, Muted Voice, in the very last chapter, Lessons from a Christian Racist. And in that uh, chapter, I was dealing with Peter, who was a saved, spirit-filled Christian, called as an apostle, yet he was a Christian racist. And I was talking about six remedies that delivered him or began the process of delivering him from racism. And I won't go into all six of them, but I want to look at one of them. And one of them was acclamation. Acclamation. Now, I brought up the issue of acclamation because it's going to introduce us to another problem. I believe, and, and, and acclamation, and I define it as when you adjust to a new climate, new situation, and new environment. And if we're gonna, if we're gonna be one in the church, in the body of Christ, and I'm speaking to the body of Christ, acclamation has to take place. We're going to have to learn to adjust to new climate, a new situation, new environment, and we're going to have to adjust to new, a new culture. Now, I said this in my book. I said that we will never dismantle racism if we are or remain in our segregated spaces. We will never dismantle racism if we are in or remain in our segregated spaces. And then I said, a church in disunity has no authority to speak to a divided land. Now, I made my position clear concerning uh, uh, acclamation. Personally, I believe that black, white, red, yellow, brown, whatever your race or ethnicity, I believe that you should be led by the Spirit to where you go to church and where you join church. You should be led by the Spirit. You should go where you are led. And when members of our church whether it be black or white or red or yellow or brown, when members of our church feel led to cross over, 
and to another ethnicity, another uh, culture, another church, if blacks are led to cross over into white churches and white Christians are led to cross over to black churches, then I think those who remain in that church should not criticize them for being led. And if you are being led to move out of your culture into another culture, you don't owe anybody an excuse if you're being led by the Spirit. You should notify your pastor or your leader or whatever process to let them know, but you don't owe people an excuse. I've also said this, once you cross over, then you should not turn around and throw rocks at where you came from. That's my position on that. But I brought up something, and I'm setting the stage for some other things that I'm going to say. I brought up something, and I asked a question. I said, is there racism in the multi-ethnic movement? Now, that's something we're going to have to talk about as we move toward racial reconciliation. According to sociologist Michael Emerson, a multiracial congregation, or what we call a diverse church, is one where no single racial or ethnic group accounts for 80% or more of the membership. 80% or more of the membership. Now, listen at this. And one uh, a statistic says that about 12 to 14% of American congregations are racially mixed. I saw another statistic, a recent statistic, said that that's been improved, that now we're up to 20% of American churches are racially mixed. That's 80% of American churches that are racially uh, segregated. So I asked this question, and we're going to have to talk about this question. Is there, multi, is there racism in the multi-ethnic movement? Seeing that the majority of multi-racial churches are led by white pastors. Why is that? We got to talk about that. Secondly, multiracial churches, most, become diverse by minorities assimilating. Why is that? We've got to talk about that. Why is it difficult for white uh, Christians to assimilate in black congregations? We've got to talk about that. If blacks are crossing over, but whites are not crossing over, is that true diversity and is it true equality? That's an issue in what I call the multi-ethnic movement. Now, that opens us up to another issue. And the second issue, and here again, I'm trying to raise some issues. And if you have any comments, you have any questions, uh, you can give me your questions. There's a false assumption. Here's the other issue. There's a false assumption that segregation is the root of racism. There is a false assumption that segregation is the root of racism.
1963, Martin Luther King Jr. said, the most segregated hour of Christian America is the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning. Now, 50 years later, that's still the truth. Now, so let's talk about this false assumption. Some people think that segregation is the root of racism. So the problem, they say, is segregation. The problem with racism is segregation. Now, if the problem to racism is segregation, then the, the, the solution to racism would be diversity, or what we used to call integration. So if the problem is segregation, then the solution would be integration, or what we call diversity. So if the problem is segregation, and the solution is diversity or integration, then the action, now listen carefully because I'm going somewhere with this, the action would be to build a culturally diverse congregation. That would be the action. If segregation is the problem to racism and the, the solution would be integration or diversity, then the action would be to build a culturally diverse congregation. Now, that's what many people have done, well-meaning people, well-meaning people say, if we can have more diversity, so diversity becomes a destination. The, it, it become, but diversity as a destination is a mirage. It looks like it's the answer, but it's not the answer. It, diversity is important. I already talked about the church of Antioch. Diversity is very, very important. But if, if diversity is the destination, then all we got to do is have white people integrate black churches and black people integrate white churches and all the other ethnicities become integrated or diverse, if we want to use that word, then we're saying that diversity is the destination. But a diversity-centric theory of change is a flawed approach. Now listen at that. I'm not saying diversity we shouldn't shoot for diversity. I'm saying that diversity as a destination is a flawed, is a flawed approach. Diversity may create togetherness and even destroy segregation, but diversity will not create equality. I'm going to say that again because that's a very important point. Diversity. Let's say uh, as black congregations, we, we got a lot of white people in our church now. We got a lot of white people. Or let's say we're uh, traditionally a white congregation and now we got, we got a lot of black folk in our church. Okay. If that's the destination, then I'm saying a diversity-centric theory of change is a flawed approach because diversity 
may create togetherness and even destroy segregation, but diversity will not create equality. Segregation, listen carefully, is not the root of racism. Segregation is not the root of racism. Segregation is the fruit of racism. I'll say that again. Segregation is not the root of racism. Segregation is the fruit of racism. Now, diversity, and here's another point, diversity and equality are not the same thing. Diversity and equality are not the same thing. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to write that down. Diversity and equality are not the same thing. Diversity and equality are not the same thing. I want to give you a historical example, and then I want to give you a present-day example of this. Historically, the U.S. Declaration of Independence stated that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, when this was written by forefathers, the United States was a diverse nation. There was whites, that were a part of the nation. There were blacks who were enslaved that was a part of the nation. There were Native Americans who were a part of the nation. And there were women uh, and men who were a part of the nation. And even though the Declaration talked about all men be created equal, blacks were not equal, yet they were a part of the diverse nation. Native Americans were not equal, even though they were a part of the nation. Women were not equal, even though they were a part of the nation. They were, though the nation was diverse, but there was no equality. They was also included. They were valued, but not equal. Blacks were valued for their labor, but they were not equal. Women were valued for creating families, but they were not equal. Native Americans were valued for the land, but they were not equal. You can have diversity and even have some inclusion and not have and not have uh, equality. And that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that. Now, here's something that's going on. I was reading about it the I was reading about it the other other uh just last night I was reading about we have a situation that has been going on the last two or three years uh, where in diverse churches, churches that have been racially diverse, blacks and minorities are leaving. They're leaving some of these traditionally white congregations, evangelical churches, that they had that had had it had uh, inclusion and had diversity, but now they are leaving. So uh, so it it appears that history 
is repeating itself. Okay, well, what are you talking about history is repeating itself? Well, in the pre-Civil War days, the days of slavery, the church was interracial because white slaveholders forced their slaves to go to church with them, and the slaves would sit back in the back or in the balcony. The slave owners did not want the slaves to worship or gather without their, outside of their presence because they felt that they would come up with some kind of thing to rebel and leave. So they forced them to worship with them. That was a diverse, integrated church with slaves and slave owners, but it was no equality. But then, uh, Minister L.P. mentioned this uh, in his session, post-Civil War, Richard Allen, who was a free slave, attended St. George Methodist Church in Philadelphia from 1786 to 1792, 1786 to 1792, and he was in a worship environment, an interracial church, and yet he was forced to leave the white section to sit in the back or in the balcony in the back. And because he was not treated, treated he was not treated with equality, he and Absalom Jones left and, and formed different denominational churches. Richard Allen started the AME Church. So now history seems to be re repeating itself because there are African-American and minority Christians and white evangelical churches, and now they are saying, and I've read this and heard other people say this, that they are not feeling the relevance of the church. They're not feeling that the leadership is understanding their position, and they're not identifying with the church because many blacks in these racially uh, uh, diverse churches are feeling that the scriptures covers issues that the leadership is not dealing with. Social ills of race and equality issues, issues of brute police brutality and abuse. And then there are other social issues like employment, issues like blacks are 50% less likely to get a job interview if they apply with names that sound black. Lending and lending, given the exact financial history, whites are two to ten times more likely to get a loan than people of color. Policing, black automobile drivers are three times more likely to be stopped and searched. Criminal justice system, blacks are more often arrested, convicted, and given longer sentences than whites who commit the same crime. These are issues that black people deal with 
So even though they may cross over, be led by the Spirit to cross over into a white congregation, if the leadership is silent on these issues, it creates a gap in the congregation. And blacks, according to what I've heard and according to what I've read, are concerned are concerned because some are believing that the white leaders are more concerned about not offending the white stakeholders. So what do we have here? And a lot of this started with the election of Donald Trump, a polarization. So now we've got, we got some division again, and it all stems to race race. And the reason why we keep in the, whether we're, whether we're segregated, it's an issue. Whether we acclimated, we got racial issues. Whether we're diverse, we got issues. The reason we got these issues is because we're not dealing with the root of racism. We're not dealing with the root of it. I began to talk about it in our last session. We're not dealing with the root of it, so I want to take us further. I heard a minister teaching recently, and it was, it was a powerful lesson, powerful lesson. Sometimes I call out people's names. Other times I don't call out people's names because they may not want to be identified with everything that I'm saying. So this minister said that there can be no reconciliation without equality. And he hammered that up, hammered that point across. And it was a powerful, it was a powerful sermon. He said that there can be no reconciliation without equality. And that's powerful. There can be no reconciliation in the church in America without equality. I want to I want to add something to that. There can be no equality as long as there exists superiority and inferiority. I said it, but I said it a little bit different. There can be no equality as long as there exists in the church superiority and inferiority. Now, I want to allude to something that I said last week, and then I'm going to begin to talk the rest of the way about what I think is the root of racism, the root of racism. Jefferson Davis, I mentioned this, in 1860. You say, well, why do you keep going back to 1800s and 1700s and 1600s? Because everything has a root. Everything has a cause. The Bible said the curse causeless shall not, shall not come. In other words, there's a root. If we only deal with symptoms and we never get to the root of the problem, then it's never going to change. It's never going to change. Even if we get together and we're in the same church, black and white and red, yellow and brown, and we're all together and we're worshiping together, we, there still won't be equality because there cannot be equality as long as there's superiority 
and inferiority. Jefferson Davis in 1860, who was a senator of Mississippi, later became the president of the Confederacy. This is what he said. And this is how all this stuff began. It began way back there. Listen at this. He said, this government was not founded by Negroes, nor for Negroes, but by white men for white men. Now, that's what he says. This government was not founded by Negroes, nor for Negroes, but by white men for white men. Here's what he said. He said, we recognize the fact of the inferiority stamped upon that race of men by the creator and from the cradle to the grave, our government as a civil institution marked that inferiority. Now that is so powerful because we're talking roots now. We're talking roots now. We're talking roots now. We're talking roots now. The root of racism. The root of racism. What is the root? What do we have to really talk about? Listen, he says, this government was not founded by Negroes nor for Negroes, but by white men for white men. Now, listen at this the last part of what he says. We recognize, we recognize the fact of the inferiority stamped upon that race of men by the creator. And from the cradle to the grave, our government as a civil institution marked that inferiority. Now, listen, words are powerful. Death and life are in the power of the words. Generational curses will never change if we don't do something and talk about it in the church. Jefferson Davis claimed in his statement that inferiority was stamped on the black race, implicating God as being responsible for the hierarchy, that God did it, that God stamped inferiority on the race. And he says, from the cradle to the grave, our government as a civil institution marks that inferiority. Now, I want to talk about what I believe is the root of racism. I believe that the root of racism in America is the ideology of white supremacy. Now, I'm going to say that again, and I'm going to explain it to you. I believe that the root of racism in America and even in the church, I'm talking about specifically in the church, is the ideology of white supremacy. Now, when you hear the word white supremacy, normally what you will think of is the KKK. You think of white uh, nationalists. You think of white sheets, white robes. You think of burning crosses. You think of the use of the N-word. But I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about, I, when I talk about white supremacy, I'm not talking about a French social movement led by racist extremists. I'm not talking about that. We all recognize that. We all know that's racist. We all know that. That's what I'm not, I'm not talking about that. We call them bad people. I'm not talking about the bad people. 
I'm talking about the good people. Now listen at this. When I talk about the ideology of white supremacy, I'm talking about the supremacy of whiteness and white culture. The supremacy of whiteness and white culture. Now I'm going to give you an analogy and then I'm going to flip that analogy into an illustration and we're going to talk about how white supremacy is the root and then we'll talk about all the fruits that come out of that. Now listen at this. Imagine in your mind, this is an analogy, a fruit tree. See the fruit tree in your mind? I want you to see roots in that tree. See the fruit tree? They're the roots of the tree. You got the trunk of the tree and you got the tree and then you got three branches three branches on this tree, three branches. And this is a true tree. On one branch, you got peaches. On another branch, you got plums. And on another branch, you got apricots. So you got three different kinds of fruit on that fruit tree. But that fruit tree got roots, has a trunk, and then it's got three branches. It's got peaches, plums, and apricots. Now, that's the natural analogy. Now, let's flip over into this race tree. I want to talk about a race tree now. In this race tree, you got roots. See the roots? You got the roots in the race tree. See the roots? You got the roots. Then you got the trunk. It's a race tree. It's not a fruit tree. It's a race tree. And then you got the tree. You got the tree. And then you got three branches on the tree. I'll give you the branches, and then we'll come back and look at it. On the first branch, you got race-based hierarchy. Race-based hierarchy, one branch. The second branch, you have racism. Racism. And then the third branch, you got segregation. Remember, I said that segregation is not the root of racism. Segregation is the fruit, one of the fruits of racism. Now, as we look at this tree, let's go to the roots first. And let's talk about white supremacy is the roots. White supremacy is the roots. And I'm talking about the supremacy of whiteness or white culture. So let me give you a couple of, let me give you uh, some definitions of what I mean when I say white supremacy. So you won't be thinking hoods and won't be thinking the N-word. You won't be thinking these bad people and all that. When I talk about white supremacy, I'm talking, number one, about a concept, a concept that white people and white culture is normal and superior. And if you're taking notes, you want to write, you want to write this down. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down. White supremacy is a concept that identifies white people and white culture as normal and superior. I'm going to give that to you one more time. White supremacy is a concept that identifies 
white people and white culture as normal and superior. Let's stop there for a moment. Whiteness in our country is normal. It's normal. White people don't think about race. Black people, other people, ethnicities think about race, but most white people don't navigate through the culture thinking about race. It is normal. For example, I looked up, and you can do the same thing. I went to Google, and I Google Barack Obama. And when I Google Barack Obama, uh, it said an American politician and attorney who served as the 44th president of the United States. And then it says something, because I knew it was going to say this. He was the first African-American president of the United States. First African-American of the United States. Then I Googled Donald J. Trump, and it says that he was the 45th president of the United States, and he was a businessman and a TV personality. But it said nothing about him being the 45th white president of the United States. Then I Googled George W. Bush, and it says that he was the 43rd president, but it said nothing about him being the 43rd white president. And then I Googled Bill uh, Clinton, and it says that he was the 42nd president, but it said nothing about him being the 42nd white president of the United States because white is normal. Everything else is a deviation. That's why uh, you have black history and you walk in your bookstores and you see American history. You don't see white history. You see American history. American history means white because American history and white is normal. Anything else is a deviation. So I'm, that's why we have Black History Month. We don't have white history month. We have black history month because black history is a deviation. See, white supremacy is a concept that white people and white culture is normal. It is what's normal. That's And black people are navigating through waters that are not normal. And what whites have to understand is whites have to understand that what is normal for you is not normal for people of color. But it's also a concept that white people and white culture is superior. A second definition of white supremacy is that white supremacy is the false belief that God, the God of the universe, has chosen whites to civilize and dominate the earth. It is the false belief that the God of the universe has chosen whites to civilize and dominate the earth. Now, you see that over in Jefferson's Davis, his his thesis, what he's saying, his ideology, he's saying the creator stamped that race of people with inferiority. I'm saying that you have to understand the roots of it. The roots of it is white supremacy. 
Now, when you go up the trunk of the tree, you run into a race-based hierarchy. That's fruits. A hierarchy is a system of organization. It is a stratification. It is, it is a, a delineation that some races are on the top, other races are next, and then other races are on the bottom. In the race-based hierarchy, whites are always on the top, those who have proximity to whites, whether it be Asian Americans or whoever, they're always going to be in the middle, and then blacks are always going to be on the bottom. That's the fruit. A race-based hierarchy is the fruit of the ideology of white supremacy. You're going to always have that hierarchy. And he talked about it. That's what uh, Jefferson Davis was talking about. He says that the government was not founded by Negroes nor for Negroes, but by the white men for white men. In other words, the whites are supposed to be at the top. Those that are close in proximity, whether they look a little white or hair is a little like white people or whatever, then they're going to always be in the middle and black people are going to always be on the bottom. Now, the other branch is racism. Racism. Now, racism is analogous to the peach fruit. It's analogous to the peach fruit. The three parts to the peach fruit. There's the skin, there's the flesh of the peach or the meat of the peach, and then there is the seed of the tree. So when you think of racism, you have to think of beliefs, systems, and power. Belief, systems, and power. Belief, systems, and power. So racism is the belief that race or skin color accounts for differences. Differences in character, differences in intelligence, differences in, in ability, difference in civility, difference in beauty, which result in partiality toward one group and prejudice against another group. So racism is a belief that certain groups have value more value than other groups. Racism is also a system. David Wellman says that it is the system, uh, is a system of advantage based off race. So beyond the skin, the belief, personal ideology, there's going to always be systems that's connected to institutions, the processes, the, pro the uh, practices, the policies, and institutions that make it difficult or more difficult for people of color to succeed and participate. Systems. And then thirdly, racism has to do with power. When you get to the seed of racism, it is about power. Uh, Claude Anderson says that racism is a power relationship. It is uh, people, groups of people struggling and competing for power, political power and resources. So when you talk about racism, you're talking about the belief, the personal ideology, systems that connects to institutions, and you're talking about power, who has the power. Then the third branch of racism is segregation. You always will have segregation, but it's not the fruit. 
It's not the, the root. So if you integrate and have diversity, but you don't deal with the fruit, the root of it, then all you got is people together, but there's no equality. So segregation is a belief that equality is impossible because of the innate superiority of the white race and the innate inferiority of the black race. In other words, racism uh, is separation, segregation is separation, and the person who has this ideology believe that God ordained the separation. So you got the roots, white supremacy, the fruit, race-based hierarchy, racism, and segregation. So the issue, the antithesis of white supremacy is Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. And before I say anything about, before I say anything about that, I want to say, I said it in my book, I said it in my book, that the only thing that's going to break racism, dismantle racism, is we are going to have to talk about it. A muted voice is no voice. We got to talk about it. We got to talk about all these issues, and we're going to have to preach against it. We're going to have to preach against white supremacy, and it's going to involve courage. It is going to involve uh, sacrifice. It's going to, but we're going to have to preach against it. Now, I mentioned Martin Luther King. He said something about the nation repenting. And he said in so many words that the nation is going to have to repent, not just for the actions and the words of bad men, but he said that we're going to have to repent for the appalling silence of good men. So as long as we, we're in these churches and we don't say anything about racism, we don't say anything about it, we don't talk about it, it's divisive, it's going to continue to persist because the only thing that will break this, because this began years ago, but it's passed down. Ideologies, culture is passed from generation to generation. And if it's not talked about, preached about, communicated about, it's never going to change. Now, I made that statement, it is going to change, and we have to choose whether or not we're going to be a part of it. Are we going to be a part of it? Are we going to be a part of the change? Or is God going to have to choose somebody else in our place? Because it's going to change because it's blocking revival. Racism in America is blocking revival. It is blocking how good and how pleasant it is for men to dwell together in unity it's like the oil that comes down from Aaron's beard, comes all the way down to the hem of his garment. It's the anointing. It's the power of God. 
It's like the dew of Hermon, productivity. There the Lord will command the blessing, Psalms 133. Jesus said in Psalm 17, that the world may know and the world may believe that you've sent me. And how will they know? That we will be one. There is no, is no power. There is no, is no revival apart from oneness. And there cannot be any oneness if there's no equality. And there can be no equality as long as some are superior and some are inferior. Now, Galatians 3.28 is the antithesis, the very opposite of white supremacy. Galatians 3.28 is what we are going to have to preach. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. You're not going to have oneness if you don't preach that. Now, you can have togetherness, but you're not going to have equality until this is preached. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. That's race. There's no longer uh, slave or free. That's class. There's no longer female nor male. That's gender. For you are one in Christ. And everyone in our congregations have to feel that their needs are being met. And if we don't talk about these things, people are going to feel that there, that we're hiding something, that we don't want to talk about something. We're going to have to talk about these issues if we're going to have one. Now, I've talked about, and I don't, I, I don't know, this may be the end of it. I've talked about politics. I've talked about response and words. I've talked about the divide between black Christians and white Christians. I've talked about racism, the elephant in the room. And I've talked about the fact that togetherness, together but not equal. I believe that there's enough information here. I don't know what the Lord want me to say more about it. You know, I said what I got, and then if you give me something else, I'll say it. But I believe that I've communicated enough along with my books for us to have some intelligent, open, transparent, and honest discussions. I do have some comments, and I want to look at, at my comments here. Um, comment number one, it is my opinion that white Christians don't cross over to black churches due to racism and not wanting to be led by a black pastor. That may be true, and, and, and that may be absolutely true. Uh, and, and that's why I brought it up. I brought it up because that's a question that only white Christians can answer. I don't believe God is only speaking to black Christians to cross over into white congregations, and he's not speaking to white Christians to cross over into black. And I don't believe it's because white congregations are perfect because we know they're not perfect. So, uh, Black congregation is not going to be perfect either. So that is that may be true, and that is a question that white Christians are going to have to answer. Not to me, not to you, 
but they're going to have to answer that question before God. Comment, privilege perception is the problem. Whites will never embrace diversity or integration because their mentality cannot accept a black pastor. That's kind of consistent with the other thing. You know, it, it, you know all I can say is uh, I pray and hope that this doesn't stir up anger in you. I think it should stir up, because I'm not talking to just black Christians. There are white pastors who listen to me. Uh, there are white Christians who listen to me. Um, and here again, that's a that's a issue that white people have to answer. Is there a reason that white people are leaving white people are leaving white churches? I, I didn't I didn't I didn't I wasn't saying white people were leaving white churches. I said black people. Maybe you heard me wrong. Is there a reason that white people are leaving white churches? No, I didn't say that. I said the articles that I've been reading, the people that I've been talking to, uh, black people are leaving white evangelical churches. We not know, know it's not all people, but some are. Uh, the equality issue must be taught in the body with courage and patience. It seems to me that some pastors are fearful. So what has to change for pastors to teach on it? Well, I, you know, I don't always know what God is doing everywhere, but I think that there are people who are teaching on it. And uh, I know I've taught on it. It's going to require courage to teach on it because anytime you teach on it, you're going to be misunderstood. People are going to hear you wrong. And then some people may want to leave or quit the church. I mean, that's all a part of it. But the issue for me is tr trusting God, believing God, pleasing God, because one day, all of us pastors are going to have to stand before God. We're not going to stand before our congregation. We're not going to stand before people. We're going to stand before God, and we have to give us account of it. Do you believe that some white pastors are using their members and ties if they teach on this subject? I don't know the answer to that question because I don't know what's in white pastors' hearts. So I can't, I can't answer that question. Uh, that gets over into a judgment, and I, in the same way, that people can say, well, you know, Pastor Mike, he's teaching that because of this. People don't know my heart, so I won't, I, I'm not going to cross over and say, this is why white pastors is, is using their members. No, I'm not saying that. I don't know that. I, I can't see their hearts. I don't know what their hearts are. Do you think that if people saw the move of God like miracles, signs, and wonders in the church, that people would not look at color of the skin because they want their needs met. Well, well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that signs and wonders and miracles. Um, I'm not sure that signs and wonders and miracles is the is the key to reconciliation and unity. Now, here's why I say that. Jesus, if you read the if you read the Gospel of John, in several places in the Gospel of John, it says, and there was a division among them. There, John, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in the 11th chapter of John, and the Bible says that there were some that believed and some didn't. 
So uh, in the Azusa Street Revival, uh, there were signs, there was wonders, there was miracles, but many believe that racism uh, destroyed uh, that move of God. So I don't think signs and wonders are the key to it. I think signs and wonders will be the result of unity. I don't think it's the key to unity because, you know, Nowhere in the scripture does it say that people are going to believe by a miracle. The scripture says that faith comes by hearing. It's the word that will produce a uh, changed heart. Miracles don't change people's hearts. Miracles show that there's a God, but miracles don't change people's heart. It's the word that changes people's heart. Um, how do you handle a white pastor who doesn't want to address the real crucial issue in America? Well, see, you know, that the answer to that question to me is no different than any anything. You have to, number one, you have to be led to a church, and you have to believe that God has sent you to that church. And if you believe that God has sent you to that church, then you should connect to that church. If there's a problem in the church, then you should ask God, what should you do? You should ask God, what should you stay there? Should you leave there? You should ask God what you do. I don't think you personally can change anybody's heart. I don't think my members can change my heart. I think my members can pray for me but I don't think my members can change my heart. So I think that's a, that's an issue of being led by the Spirit. You have to ask yourself, what am I supposed to do? And not just yourself. You have to go to God and you have to say, now, God, this is what's going on in my church. What do you want me to do? And God will talk to you. God will let you know what you should do. Um if white supremacists is based on their belief that God instructed them to be that way toward the rest of mankind, how are they ever going to change? It, the, the, the simple question is that ideology is a lie. Okay, it's a lie. It's a lie. So Jesus says you know the truth, and the truth will make you free. I don't. I don't know how it's going. To, I don't know how God is going to do it, but it's going to happen. God is going to deal with this. It, it is not going to go away. I know some people are praying for the marches to stop and people to be go on. It's not going to go on. It's something that it is in the season, is in the time where it is going to be dealt with. And, and it, this is the bottom line on it. Um, the bottom line on it is, is God will use us or he will use somebody else. That's the way I approach my ministry. I'm talking about this because I felt like God was leading me to talk about it. You know, and I have these discussions with God too, you know, but my job is to teach. My job is to share and I trust him. Now, I know I'm talking about me now. God said, Mike, I want you to teach on this. I can do it or I can choose not to do it. That doesn't limit God. God can choose somebody else. He can always choose somebody else. God always, that's, that's what Mordecai said to, to Esther. He said, now, you've come to the, 
you've come to the table for such a time as this. If you, if you don't choose to do the right thing, then God will look for deliverance somewhere else. Unity is going to come to America. Unity is going to come to the church. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to do it. If it means some folk dying out and other folk being raised up, God is going to do it. If it means God choosing somebody over choosing somebody else, God is going to do it. All I know is he's going to deal with it, and we can't stop him. When that season hit, and we are in that season now, when that season hit, it is going to happen. Can we do anything to aid this process besides prayer? Listen, don't say besides prayer. Listen, the best thing you can do is pray because most Christians don't pray about it. I pray about race relations. I pray about racism in the church and in America on a regular basis. Some Christians don't pray about it ever. So if you're praying about it, you pray about it. God moves through our prayers. Would you agree that there's a growing move toward culture, Christianity, in white America, especially with evangelical churches, and that this movement confuses Christianity with culture and God with country. I think that we have confused God with country and uh, God with culture, and I think that's a part of the problem. While we're divided, it's because we've allowed culture and nationalism and all these things to usurp Jesus Christ and the church. Amen. Those are good questions. Those are great questions. I think I answered, it was 10 of them, and I think I answered uh, all 10 of them. Great job. Great job. We went over a little bit, but I think it was what we were supposed to do. I love you. God bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.